I'm increasingly getting to this point of always trying to, even if I fully disagree with where someone's coming from, I think it's incredibly important to understand, even if you then kind of go, yeah, this is the wrong thing to do, that's a really harmful thing, to understand what has brought someone to that point. And I think for our own self-care, we have to be aware of the impermanence of, of our sort of selves. We have to be building the alternative structures ready to be in place so that we're not just sort of like, oh, now a big thing's happened, what do we do? We have to have networks of ideas, networks of organisations and everything ready for these moments. And we have to have a concerted awareness among the left that we are preparing for these moments and we're going we're gonna to strike when something happens. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Graham. Hello, Graham. Hello. We're recording in a well, a secret location, I'm going to say, because I kind of like this place uh, to be kind of quiet. But we're in Shoreditch. The music in the background is not going to be as, as noticeable as the cars occasionally going by uh, through the kind of open windows. It's a hot day, so it's understandable for them to keep the windows open here. The first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Thinking back, I'm pretty sure it's, it's either through Twitter primarily or through Natalie Guest, perhaps. Yeah. At, un- at Unfortunately. I, I think a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Nat and I go back uh, a long way. Uh, we used to be a couple, sort of about four or five years. I can't remember how long it was, about a decade ago now. An awful lot of sort of mutual mutual friends we've made between us and yeah so hello Nat yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I mean yeah I I guess I became aware of you because of Twitter and yeah I follow uh, unfortunately on Twitter (laughs) uh, who I now know as Natalie but didn't when I first started following you I think you were both just uh, Twitter handles yeah uh, (laughs) saying things I liked uh, and I would retweet occasionally Um, and so yeah that's I've been aware of you for a while I don't really know how long a while um, probably since when I joined Twitter, I was quite late compared to a lot of people. I think probably around 2011, 2012. That's, that's like. I was going to say. That seems about like yeah. Yeah, 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 around about when I was starting this very podcast. Oh, wonderful. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's how we know each other. We've never. I think is this the first time we've met in person? Yeah, yeah, it is. There's, there's an off chance we might have been in the same room right. somewhere, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've been we've actually like, met face to face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we're. I think we're Facebook friends, so we've seen pictures of each other. <laughs> yeah, um, enough that it was like, oh, that's your face. I right, right, that's right. your face. <laughs> yeah, walk, walking here, I was not like, oh, should I have said, uh, like, wear a red uh, coronation or something? Yeah. Like, we knew what each other looked like. But this is the first time we've met, and the first time we've, the first time we've talked, really. I mean, we've been talking a little bit before now, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. as we've acclimatised ourselves to the, to, the, to the space and got coffee and stuff like that. But at the same time, a lot of the times when I meet someone... For the first time, I'm like, well, I don't know what I'll talk to them about. But yeah. because I've known you through social media for so long, there's there's so many things uh, <laughs> that, that, that we can easily talk about. Um, so the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? What do I do now? The majority of my time is split pretty evenly between two things. One is hairdressing. You know, I'm working at um, a barber's actually just around the corner called Open Barbers. It's sort of a queer and trans friendly hairdressing space you know for all genders all hair types and yeah it's just a really lovely accessible radical space that's trying to create something that you just 
don't find in many other places around around London. Just a very kind of place people can go and hang out, don't have to spend any money, where where people can feel accepted, regardless of you know their sort of gender or ethnicity or anything like that. Um, and that's an absolutely wonderful job. I'm really enjoying it. I only I only trained in that a few years ago. The other half of my time is spent writing and doing political organising, both around the same sort of the same sort of sorts of things. Right, right. Because yeah, I mean that's that's one of the the things that drew me to following you is your politics and your you have really interesting politics. I think like it's 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 not as simple as just uh, you're you know you're broadly in the left, right? Uh, like yeah. fair enough. A lot of people are broadly in the left, but you have like very specific theory based thinking um, that attracts me. I, I, I like I like systems. I, Although I'm an anarchist, I like systems and yeah. I like uh, that kind of way of thinking, theory. Um, and so that definitely is part of the reason that I'm interested in what you do. And you also, you've got a book coming out. I have indeed, yeah. I think, uh, is it out already, maybe? It's, it's officially released in, I think, in about a week or two weeks. Um, 28th of July, it's out. So it's called uh, The Shock Doctrine of the Left. And it's on uh, Polity Press. Yes, that's very exciting. Um, it's been a couple of years kind of coming together. Um, and yeah, it sort of brings together all the sort of stuff you you're alluding to, all the sort of like left sort of systems thinking, but trying to do it in a very accessible kind of theory, but like very practical kind of how do we put this into action kind of right. uh, kind of stuff. Right, because that's that's always the the hard thing to to kind of connect in some ways, like. Like for, for those of us who are interested in theory, finding ways to make that practical and accessible, mm. those two things are like the yeah. holy grail. Like certainly doing my show that I've recently done, like about masculinity, I've definitely been weighing up, uh, you know, how how many kind of academic phrases to use, yeah. how much how much to assume people know, how much to tell them, how much to kind of focus on theory, how much to talk about personal experience and lived experience which yeah. is a lot of what makes people interested in theory in the first place yeah exactly so it's like finding that balance um, is always a difficult thing that's something I've, I've tried really hard to balance in, in the book try to weave in lots of sort of narrative bits about political activism that I've done and actually try and paint pictures of you know actions that were happening or meetings that were frustrating or conversations that were engaging or just like moments that were particularly vivid and then sort of showing how they demonstrate aspects of the theory that I'm kind of putting forward and so so there's multiple ways in you could either come into it as an academic and go oh actually like now I can see how this is applies or you could come into it just someone being interested in these kind of vibrant sort of images and be like oh actually I can see what the structure beneath this is like right. hopefully obviously that's the goal and it will be down to other people to judge whether I've been successful in that but that's sort of, yeah that's the sort of goal to try and create lots of different ways in and where we can actually kind of work together much sort of better around his ideas right and so I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk more about the book a little bit later because like, it's good to give a get, get for people to get an idea of a human being before we go into the theory of course yeah yeah so like in terms of the open barbers which again is another thing that sounds really great to me and, and even though I haven't cut my hair in a long time because I'm growing it um, I've, I've, I've come round to the conclusion that I have to cut it trim it do something to yeah. it uh, because I want to keep growing it and actually it won't grow as fast and it won't certainly it gets all frizzly and stuff exactly, um, yeah. if I don't do something to it so I've, I've come around to that um, so I, I, I may very well t- take a visit to the open barbers before I'm before I leave London um, because it seems like the best kind of 
place to get your hair cut that exists. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's absolutely fantastic place. Just, just, just on, on that and a tip for anyone else listening. It's like it's it's basically like a mantra now. It's like six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks. Everyone should have their hair cut six to eight weeks. As obviously, it's, in most places, it's a bit expensive. And open barbers like we, we just do like pay what you can. Basically. Right. So you know, if you want to pay two quid and get your hair cut every six weeks, and that's all you can afford, great. But yeah, so if you, if you can afford, or if you have some means, or just you know, if your your pals can like help you trim your hair like every every six to eight weeks, it just keeps it healthy. Even if even if you're growing it out, just take off like a millimeter off your off your hair, and it just like keeps it strong right. and does, doesn't get all scraggly and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, it's just it's such a wonderful place, open barbers. And although I've, like, I've presented like, as we started, I've presented these as two different things in my life. I actually see them as quite entangled. Like right. it's, it's very much a like it's not the the the, the, the directors um, Greg, Gregory and Felix they they don't refer to it as a business it's it's a it's a non-profit um, social enterprise and they refer to it more as a project so it's it actually has almost kind of like an activist purpose right it's like a sort of an alternative sort of institution like that is trying to provide something that is not provided anywhere else I sort of weave that in into the kind of stuff I'm writing about which is you know, balancing all these different things we need to do. Yeah, we need to attack, you know, these horrible structures that are in place, but we also need to be building the alternatives, you know, things like cooperatives and social enterprises and social economy and building those ways of relating to each other, you know, um, there's more sort of caring way, caring sort of relations with people. That's, that the balancing of those two things is a really big, important part, I think, of, of what we need to be doing like politically right. and so I, I do see and I think my colleagues probably feel the same way that it's it's not abstracted from our politics it's very right, much part right, of living right. that same sort of thing I mean that's one of the things that appeals to me about it like again it's it's accessible uh, it's welcoming it's it's like it's it's deconstructing some of the systems around us like mm. pay what you like is kind of like making it accessible around kind of the restrictions of living under capitalism, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and but but also it's it's inclusive of trans people, it's inclusive of different ethnicities. It's it's, it's just a, a a great shining beacon of how I'd like the world to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, everything everything I've seen about Open Barbers, even its name is a p- very appealing to me. Um, but like, how did you become a barber? It's actually interesting on, on multiple levels. I guess this is another thing which kind of I think this is maybe the one of the ways in which though it ties ties together my sort of political and my working stuff in that I was for the best part of a decade just doing crappy office work um, like admin and secretarial stuff to be fair sometimes in quite interesting places sometimes in quite problematic places uh, my last few jobs were in uh, in the NHS and obviously I, I really value the NHS as an institution sure um, but obviously it was going through a hell of a lot yeah. of problems very stressful problems and just my particular role was always quite dull it was uh, it was always just like typing up like doctor's notes and things like this and it wasn't particularly an environment I liked being in I found nine to five work very difficult in not in lots of different ways around kind of mental health and neurodivergence and stuff like this unfortunately the kind of work that I was doing as well um mainly like I say around audio typing like typing up basically you'd have you know whoever it was you were working for like a doctor or a judge or whatever would speak into a dictaphone and you just end up type you, t- you type up what they've spoken into like into into like some sort of formal document right which is incredibly automatable nowadays and increasingly the jobs i was going into you were seeing that uh, they were starting to implement software which was going to do this and cut down a lot of labor now i'm not 
I'm not saying that I couldn't have carried on doing that kind of work, but it did. It got noticeably more precarious. I used to be able to get jobs, even as a temp worker, and stay in them for you know two to three years. Then it got down to six months, and then it was down to sort of like a week, sometimes a day or two. Right. And I got into this kind of like spiral where I didn't have stability in my work, and then I had no stability in my mental health. I was just behaving really erratically, and that made it harder to hold on to jobs because I was right. being quite strange, um, and just everything just kind of fell apart and I was like I could I could keep battling with this and I probably could have carried on in that like I could have got another job and lost that and got another job and carried on like that and just about survived but I was just not I was just what I decided to cut and run and the reason I chose hairdressing is that's because my mother is a hairdresser and has always tried to encourage me to be a hairdresser and I'd always kind of sort of dismissed it in the sort of oh yeah that would be fine whatever I don't think I could do it blah 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 um it turns out she was totally right it's a brilliant job and it suits me down to the ground and I absolutely love it um, so if you're listening mum sorry I, <laughs> I ignored that for so long you were right I know mums are always right etc etc depends on the mum it does depend on the mum I, I should be very careful with saying that I'm, yeah. I'm exceptionally lucky with my, my parents um, yeah I know I, I feel very lucky I know lot, lots of people close to me have not got anywhere near as good a relationship with my, their parents um, it's, it's important to have people close to you whoever those, those people right, are right, whether right. chosen family or real family whatever exactly. what it's does all real family. mean but yeah exactly it's yeah. all as real it's all, it's all support and um, yeah it's incredibly important to have people around you and to have some community around you one way or another right and um, people to pass on in for, like that's the thing like we're often very resistant to what our parents say because we're growing up and we're working out of the world yeah. but actually often they're speaking from a place of like having lived in the world for a while mm. longer yeah. and there's pros and cons about that I'm not saying that you know uh, parents are all definitely in this moment of kind of complex uh, generational differences I'm, I'm definitely very loath to say you know trust yeah. your parents um, <laughs> but at the same time I got loads from my father like I didn't from my mum but I, I got well I got lots of things from my mum just very different kinds of things yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> they've definitely shaped me yes certainly um, you can never they're never not one way or another right <laughs> but I, def- I, def- I think it's definitely it's nice to have people who are witnesses to you when you're younger be be people you can kind of go back to and consider what they said and think oh maybe maybe they had a point and it can help shape mm-hmm. how you think of things now yeah yeah that's that's actually an interesting sort of thing thinking about the you know you said the pros and cons of that kind of generational experience like how it is an accumulation of actual real knowledge and often very useful knowledge that right. you can't just dismiss but at the same time it, it can end up with this very sort of like rigid kind of you know sort of reified idea of what what the world is and yeah like you know i've learned a hell of a lot from like i said my mom but also my dad like um around sort of uh, he's not a particularly political person he's you know he's got this sort of strange actually i go into this a little bit in the book he's got this very strange mix of extremely radical politics and extremely conservative politics right. which i actually think is probably what the vast majority of people of his generation are quite it's like. quite quite a norm i think in yeah, some ways, yeah like they'll say like my dad my dad has been like always a huge critic of like british imperialism he would like it's one of the things i always remember him talking about is like oh 
we were horrible, the British. We conquered all the world and we did this really nasty stuff. We, you know, imprisoned all these people and slavery and, and then, you know, being very anti-monarchy and all this kind of stuff, which obviously I know is not, perhaps not typical of his generation. But then votes, or had until relatively recently, voted for the Conservative Party, which he never told me until recently. And it's sort of, sort of like, that's, that really interests me that... So often when we're on, you know, obviously we're going to end up talking probably a lot about the left, or we'll, at least we'll, we'll touch on the left. And the left and the right, as, you know, as they present themselves, like in the media, in our sort of arguments, often present this idea that there is just people who are on the left or on the right. Right. And then we don't really... There's no real sort of, like, clear idea of what everyone, anyone else is, like, in the middle. It's right. either, either everyone's within those two poles, or you just kind of don't really speak about the people right. in the middle. You talk about them maybe a swing of voters or whatever. Well, it gets very muddied now because yeah. we, we, we talk a lot about centrists, but when we're talking yeah. about centrists, we're talking about the right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> and so, yeah, you, you're, I, I agree with you. I think there are lots of people who have a, a kind of mix of politics that they select bits from the left, bits from the right, bits from other kind of ideas that are not as binary as left and right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. certainly as, as someone who broadly just... I broadly define as an anarchist, but only because that's easy shorthand. And also, yeah. I think so few people understand what anarchy is that it's mm-hmm. quite good to define as an anarchist because people are like, oh, I like Dave. So maybe they're not like yeah. the worst people in the world. <laughs> and also once they added anarchists to kind of terrorism lists, I felt like it's kind of almost cowardice to not define as an anarchist. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like I'm doing that because I can. It's almost like proximity to whiteness. I can say I'm not an anarchist because like uh, I can get away with it because I'm kind of like this kind of an anarchist. Anarchists aren't left or right. Like they're, 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 they're is a, I'm probably a left anarchist, yeah. but, they're, they're, but they're, you know, I'm certainly not a libertarian. But before I met libertarians and found out what nuancedly libertarianism means, but mm. I looked at the definition of libertarianism, I might have been quite taken by some of the ideas. Mm. Um, and I think that's how a lot of people are. They take a bit from, they take what works for them from yeah. their politics around them. Exactly. So you were you were saying that your dad like has a mixture of different politics, mm-hmm. like in the way that he that and you learn from those like some of it was stuff that you learned from. I guess all of it was stuff you learned from. Like how did you feel? I guess when when you discovered that he voted Tory, like how 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 did that affect you? Um, no, it didn't particularly surprise me really, just because I think I'd already got to that point where I was. For a lot of people, like finding out that someone had voted Tory is just like the immediate kind of cut off. Like, right. It's the immediate sort of reject this kind of sort of thing. I'm increasingly getting to this this point of always trying to, even if I fully disagree with where someone's coming from, I think it's incredibly important to understand. Even if you then kind of go, yeah, this is the wrong thing to do. That's a, a really harmful thing to do. Right. To understand what has brought someone to that point, and. I, I think for my for my parents for my family in general, it's probably quite quite similar to a lot of people in that of their generation of sort of a low sort of like working class up to lower middle class kind of you know upwardly mobile sort of. It was around house prices. It was around the fact that they managed to get on. They, they came from relatively poor backgrounds. Managed to get on the housing ladder when housing was available to everyone. Right. right. Um, and house prices went up massively during the eighties. Right. And that was just like, oh, okay. Well, this is what reality is now. Right. Oh, I'm going to vote for the person who helps house prices go up because that helps my family, that helps our security and stuff. And it, I don't think there was ever anything more to it than that. 
because actually everything else that they say would completely contradicts everything else that I see the Conservative Party is standing for. Right. But it's interesting that it's only after someone close to them, like, like me, spent a lot of time saying, you realise what the Conservative Party actually does. Yeah, like what, yeah, yeah, right. what is the effect of their policies? Right. It's only after that that they, they seem to have changed tack. And it was the first time they'd ever talked about who they voted for. And they told me, we voted for Jeremy Corbyn. This, right. this time um, cool I mean good probably, yeah probably well good but also <laughs> bad in the sense that it took them I think not just for me I think it was also looking at what they were seeing happening like on the news and stuff and seeing what was happening to the younger generation and how much what they had thought was just reality was their experience how much was not reflected in this next generation all right. the opportunities that they had just weren't there yeah just thing, things like you know, like I was saying, talking about like how someone's experience is really important, but can also be quite rigid and they yeah. get stuck in modes of thinking. Like my dad, my dad was one of those one of those people from that generation that was like, "Oh, oh you know, you just got to have lots of confidence and you can get any job you want." I right. I walked into an interview with no no experience, no qualifications, and I managed to get myself like a manager role. And I'm like, it doesn't happen. Yeah, that Cannot was a possi- different world. Exactly. I yeah. mean, that's it. They've learned how to live in a world yeah. but it's first of all it's not necessarily the same world as the world they learn to live in yeah. but also um, we might not want to live in the world that they want to <laughs> oh. give us the information on how to navigate well exactly you, yeah, know, yeah. you, you see this a lot you know like whatever the advice you know uh, is, is always based around being as safe as you can or as rich as you can or whatever it mm. is the advice is about within the existing status quo and yeah, that's yeah. that is that is a problem and that's what one of the reasons why you have this intergenerational argument but i think there are plenty of people like it sounds like your parents and certainly having my dad was 58 when i was born so i've always been aware of other generations you know like he's he's 95 now and he fought in world war Two. so oh, wow. um so because of all of that like i've always been aware that there's plenty of people who do resist who do change their minds there's plenty mm. of people in older generations who say like my dad and, and many other well before before he had before he got as old as he did now he used to say you know that like he feels sorry for the generation now now he feels bad you know the the, the, the world that he's given to other people is not the world yeah. that he intended to give I think there's more and more people of older generations realizing that the the world isn't the same like you know with housing with all of these issues that that people are less going like come on sort it out go yeah. in and get a job that they're like okay I've been saying this for 10 years and like, it hasn't worked and every, everybody I know their children are also like struggling and so yeah. people are like learning it's taken a while and I think that's that's something that I'm really keen on pushing this idea among, among the left which unfortunately is quite unusual this idea that people are malleable like people can actually be convinced like people can say bad things horrible things they can do things which are damaging and they can they can actually look back at them and change yeah. like i think there's so much on the left that just so just dismisses people who have who've done or said something and then it's it's a permanent kind of like there, there isn't even the sort of the the potential to understand that someone can that that they are that you know their their present state or their state in the past is an impermanent one and I think this is actually the same the same point about like you know when an older generation of people just presume the world that they understood is the world 
that's the same for me philosophical or metaphysical error it's to understand the world that we see as the permanent one and not as a contingent one not as one right. that's just a fluid world a fluid right. world yeah not to un- like to I think we have to learn all of us to to understand that everything around us all of the social structures all the physical structures everything is it has to, to for it to be maintained it has to be built anew constantly which means it's it's just there's always the potential for it to change radically right. and that's both that both helps to ground us a bit more in reality in terms of like understanding whether there's any point in us trying to convince someone but it also just opens up this the the, the possibility that things can change and so many people on the left I think don't really believe that we can win <laughs> there's there's a real embedded sense of like uh, this apocalyptic kind of and obviously you know we do have to consider and we do have to make very very clear the, the huge risks of, of genuine apocalypse yep. to know that we really need to fight but we also need to keep in, in our minds the real sense that it is actually possible for us to win it is possible for us to change people's minds it is possible for us to build movements that actually right. fully challenge power it is possible to create an alternative world because or, people do change like yeah. I've changed like my this podcast we're speaking on now is an example of that you go back to the first hundred episodes I I disagree with everything I say in those yeah. I'm a different person I'd like I find it hard to give any kind of form of compassion to that guy because of the fact that it's <laughs> it's hard but then I, I try to for the same reason that you're you're talking about I think as, as much as people think other people can't change we also think we can't change yeah. and that often means we don't change because mm. we're like oh well I can't change I, this is the way humans are we're yeah, you know exactly. red and tooth and claw we're going to destroy each other all of these kind of ideas that kind of come back to like like we're animals or whatever which we are which I don't want to deny mm. but we're also we have capacity to, to be different to other forms of animals I don't want to say better or different like, but like we have ways of, of changing our circumstances exactly. we've done it we've done it terribly um, <laughs> we could do it but we could do it better yeah. we could do it better for us and for the world hopefully and if and if and, and if we don't have this like just on a personal level understanding of our capacity to grow to change to do better it just it can so easily lead to this kind of just nihilistic kind of you know self hatred like right. as soon as we fight we swear on this podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. as soon as we fucked up um, and then it's like oh well that's just me then isn't it that's the nature of my being I'm a horrible terrible person right. I can't get out of this I'm flawed because... forever exactly yeah. yeah and I think for our own self care um, we have to be aware of our own the impermanence of of our sort of selves I can understand, however, like when we're talking about, you know, trying to convince people of certain things, I can fully understand why people come to this conclusion. Because if you do look, like you say, if we look purely within this binary of left and right, we look at people, some of the people on the far right particularly, and some of the things that people come out with often on Twitter and Facebook, some of the absolutely vile, dangerous things that people say, and how often it can seem like you're talking to a wall when you try and convince someone. Mm-hmm. I can fully understand in that context why someone's like, well, what's the point? You can't convince anyone. We just have to beat them. Like, we just have to, well, you know. Um, and in some, to some degree as well, like one of the problems that we find ourselves now in, in kind of the current politics that we have is that there has almost been too much... Uh, like talking and debate as if you like debate with, in, with a capital letter in inverted yeah, yeah. commas basically like it's not debate it's basically just uh, platforming fascism exactly. yeah. um, but, the, but that that has been something we've done yeah. um, it's something that, that people have, have learned very embeddedly uh, t- 
that we have to debate these we have to like we have to change people's minds mm-hmm. and actually I'm all for changing and actually having sympathy and understanding uh, people who are part of fascism don't get me like that, that which is a weird thing to say but and quite like against the mainstream attitude <laughs> but that doesn't mean I'm not like pro punching a fascist. Exactly, no, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it really depends on the circumstance. And what is going to work? In some is, circumstances, the... the best thing to do is to punch a fascist. But yeah. but of course, the real important work that some anti-fascists do of like embedding themselves with fascist groups and like taking people out and like like de- reconditioning them and and, and and giving them alternative ways of viewing the world, which is hard, difficult, That's, like yeah. solidly impressive. Work, like. And that's that's something I, I try and I touch on a little bit in the book is this: if we can get rid of the just that binary pole of left and right, and try and sort of think in terms of again in terms of like systems, you can think in terms of like how closely coupled is someone to a particular system which is pumping out a particular ideology. So a fascist, like a, a on the ground organising fascist, is very difficult to change their mind because they are so closely coupled to fascist organisations, fascist media outlets and websites, communities that are actually often emotionally supporting them in their everyday lives, not just not just agreeing with them, but actually right. providing material Giving support. Giving them actual stuff. Yeah, like... and to decouple someone from that is exceptionally difficult. And often, like, I, as much as I make the argument in the book that we do need to convince people, sometimes you do have to cut and run and say, there's no point. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't have the energy... Our whole organisation doesn't have the energy to try and convince this one person. It's going to take years of work yeah. because you can. You often find you know, liberal media outlets will, will they'll find like one incredible example of you know the the, you know, the pastor who the, the, I think it was actually a really great example, a really inspiring example of like a black pastor in the in um, in America who had befriended a white fascist, a white nationalist, and had turned him right. like, over a period of years, and that's fantastic. But that's not scalable, <laughs> right? And it's also something you can only really do when you're close to somebody yeah. in whatever way. Like it's, it's significant that friendship is a part of the, that equation. Exactly. Yeah. It's a definitely like a, an, an, has to involve an emotional connection, right. and often that's just not possible. Often it's incredibly dangerous to even try it. Um, it's not going to work a lot of the time. And so I think we have to find a way of both so both dismissing the liberal idea that you just have to talk to fascists which is just absolute crap right. but also not dismiss the fact that like we said there's a huge number of people in the middle right. who might pick up a little saying from the Daily Mail but that doesn't mean that you can't bring them to the left you can't convince them that was the wrong thing to right, do right, there's a right. huge grey area like you say in the middle of people that we can like they're not completely absorbed in fascism they they can have these completely contradictory things going on in their mind these like they can be drawn to certain things like we said because of their kids they could be like well they're the same people that say horrible things about immigrants which obviously we need to utterly condemn they might also have this stuff in their head that's sort of like oh well I can see that things aren't going well for my children there's no opportunities blah 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 right. and we have to use that not giving grounds to the, like the anti-immigrant sentiment or whatever but use that as a way in yeah. to bring people to the left and through that try and change their consciousness around things like immigration at the same time yeah and it's also like it's, 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 I think it's like a thing of like people know what they see in their, from their lives and so some of the things they see in their lives are real and sometimes the left 
like by trying to understandably draw them away from the wrong conclusions they come to, i.e. it's the immigrants' fault that they don't have jobs, etc., um, kind of dismiss real, real things that they experience of not having a job, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those kind of, like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like with men's rights activists. I think if you're going to deal, like, to have a dialogue with men's rights activists, you have to say, well, on this thing, this thing, this thing, you're right. Mm. Like, men do have higher suicide rate, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You have to say, those things are right, but... The reason Huge isn't part, yeah. <laughs> feminism and women; it's actually patriarchy and and, and, and the culture that you've kind of uh, like that you're a part of. And there's, there's actually, like that's a really good sort of a general kind of it's like psychological sort of I don't know what the word mechanism that I think the left should start taking seriously. It's something that I learned when I was doing kind of a lot of facilitation of, of discussion events. One of the best ways to create a productive atmosphere in which you can actually have a conversation you can actually sort of work together with someone is like you say starting from what you do agree on even if it's the tiniest most insignificant thing if you start a conversation with someone saying no like they're closed down like completely they will not listen to a single thing you say even the stuff they would agree with they are immediately defensive if you start a conversation with someone saying or effectively saying not literally but effectively saying i hear you you are a human being, your position comes from a real-life experience, and I agree with this and this and this. But, and you don't have to concede ground, you don't have to right. pretend that any of this is okay, right. but you just, you just let someone know they're being listened to. Because a lot of the time people's frustration is just around, like this applies to things like Brexit and stuff like that, a lot of the time people's frustrations are about not feeling listened to, not feeling taken account of. They might be they might be sort of deluded in that. Maybe they are being, you know, you know we, can, we can have a huge conversation about sort of like white privilege and how, and, like, yeah. and male privilege <laughs> and stuff like this. The fact is they are feeling something real right. to them, whether they've got a poor kind of structural analysis or whatever. We can, we can try and build people's you know, consciousness in that direction, but we have to start from where people are at, and that is what they are feeling right now right. as human beings. And that can be very difficult. And something I want to just like, quickly say on we're talking a lot about the left i'm not saying that everyone on the left has to do exactly the same thing that's actually part of what i argue in my book is that we have lots of different strategies on the left and we just have to work out how to connect them together better so it's not down to the queer person of color the immigrant to to, to, to be trying to like convince fascists like right. That's going to be very dangerous for them. That's going to be very exhausting for them. And it's and not going to work. No, exactly. That's the thing. It's the least likely person to be able to communicate with somebody who's really bigoted against those people. Yeah. You know? So, so we have to So we have to work... We have to be very strategic about this sort of stuff. Working out what is going to... A, what is going to work best. What is going to be the most supportive. Um, we have to be building our movements in a way, like we say, that builds the world that we want to see. There has to be this healing element that uh, gives people these spaces... Or any space that they need to heal from the kind of horrible oppressions that they, they feel every day out on the street. Yeah. But at the same time, without destroying our strategic ability to get into conversations, difficult conversations right. with people. If we do have to say, white people, you're the ones having to have these conversations with other white people, then fine. That's, I, I think that's a, strategically that makes sense. Yeah. You just have to find a way of navigating all these different and it's one strategy as well like you exactly. can have multiple strategies like you're saying which I think is good and also I think you know it's definitely something for anyone on the broad left or even centre uh, at this moment like we need to like understand that as fascism ri- rises across the globe 
that we have to have solidarity with people who don't fully agree with our politics. Like mm. liberals, like using the not 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 in the. Uh, how Americans think of that word, but like in the way that the left thinks of that word, liberals, as annoying as they can be, <laughs> like they are our friends and family often, and they are people who we have to have some solidarity with and move forward with. We can't yeah. just like dismiss everybody that has a an un like. I, I don't know what the word is, but like not as textured an analysis as we think yeah. that there is, that, as our analysis is. Mm. We we need to be able to like say yeah okay like broadly speaking like everyone in America to combat Trump it would have helped if everyone had voted for the one of the worst leaders I can think of which is <laughs> Hillary Clinton like which again people are like they're like don't don't criticize Hillary Clinton it's like it, it shouldn't matter if we criticize Hillary Clinton yeah. we should be able to say she's a terrible warmonger who is like very much a part of ne- neoliberalism but is better than Trump yeah. so for this moment let's put aside our like ideals like our, our utopian idea mm. and like step a little bit closer to utopia by by doing something we don't like you know voting for someone we don't like you know? yeah although i mean it's it gets very difficult around that because it's gonna i think it's gonna be easier to see in hindsight what what has what's happened because right. on the one hand you could, right. could argue yeah okay once hillary got into got into the position of you know having beaten Bernie maybe everyone should have come out and voted for Hillary as opposed to what actually happened was like nobody voted pretty much a, a, such a small amount of people voted for either candidate right that's the reality that's the, that's the yeah. main thing and, and also I shouldn't it was as much Hillary's yeah. fault just uh, for, I don't want to lend full co- credence to the idea that Trump won either that's that's not even a done deal like there's there's some complexities around that I mean as someone who doesn't believe that America is a democracy or that the or the UK is a democracy these things kind of are like kind of irrelevant to me but I get like for a lot of people who are very invested with the image of these countries like they're, they're, those are the people who have all of these arguments about it like mm. it's, it's, it's kind of like and also yeah you're right it's, it's also it's not fully known like what a Clinton yeah. presidency at this moment in time would be because you know when we when we have protests against Trump we in this country we're we're ignoring the fact that we have similar policies to Trump in this country yeah. that we're not protesting yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. en masse so it is super complicated I am publishing a book through Unbound Unbound are a publishing company which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit the thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is they're half publishing company and half crowdfunding company which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering unbound approached me in december to see if i wanted to adapt my show what about the men mansplaining masculinity into a book and i said yes please i definitely would like to do that and so that is what i'm doing if you go to the unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find mansplaining masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book the way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it sharing it on social media recommending it to other people those kinds of things you can find out what the book is fully about 
by reading about it on the page. There's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about. But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So... Listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. On Hillary, I think in terms of like not knowing what's, what's going to come, or what could have come, I think it could have gone in two ways. Like, if, if Hillary got into power, then you might have just got this sort of, you know, kind of gone back to exactly the kind of sort of neoliberal centrist kind of way of governing and everyone's sort of fine with it even though you know it's incredibly imperialist and sort of like destructive to the rest of the world and oh but we've got stability back and all this kind of stuff and that could have been very bad for the left um if 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 the system had managed to realign into some kind of some kind of stability but back into exactly the same kind of you know capitalist realist right. kind of stability or maybe Hillary getting into power would have utterly destroyed the idea that that was a possibility like if if she got into power and it had been just as chaotic as <laughs> or nearly as chaotic as uh, as Donald Trump maybe that would have been the final nail in the coffin right. of of like this sort of you know centrist neoliberal democracy in, in the United States we can't really know well, and then there was other possibilities as well like some people are very wedded to the idea that what was, what should have happened is Hillary should have got into power but the left should have continued to put massive pressure on her and given her power like you can have power but that we gave you this power and mm. you have to like change your policies in alignment to your new your new base which was a kind of again utopian thinking I think there's, <laughs> there's, there's something of I argue something like like that in my book but I don't think that would have been possible at that time with with this with admittedly I'm not a huge expert on the, the structure of the Democratic Party but it doesn't seem like to me that it is in any way similar to for example what we've got at the moment with Corbyn and Momentum I mean we've got you've got the growth of the DSA the Democratic Socialists of America um, over there which is kind of like acting as a sort of a para Democratic Party in some ways there's, I think there's a lot of debate around that but right. And through that, they're increasingly... They're starting to build this power to have politicians that have arisen out of, of their organisations that they maintain some kind of control over. That, I think, is, is the potential for how to navigate this kind of state-level politics. But I don't think we could have done that with Hillary. She hasn't come out of movements. She has no real link to the grassroots right. whatsoever. And you can't, you can't manufacture I mean, that. Whereas Corbyn... 
for better or worse, you know, I'm, he's, he's actually come out with a lot of stuff recently, which I think I'm is really abysmal. against to see, yeah. yeah, around like sex work and stuff like his, you know, and promotion of the and his attitude to the police is also yeah, questionable. So, but what you can say is that he has he's very much come out of the grassroots. He cares about the grassroots. He, his whole his whole persona, his career, his beliefs is tied to being taken seriously by the grassroots and he can be pulled to the left or or if it's not about to the left or he can be pulled to more like say libertarian left maybe yeah. positions on certain things it's a, it's about that grassroots pressure which i think we can we can do increasingly over here with the Labour Party, I don't think it's possible with the Democratic Party as it stands. Well, it's a very different. They're very different traditions. They're very different poli- like countries, different, very different politics in both of them. Um, but I guess all of this ties into basically what your book is about, which yeah. is it's, it's called the Shock Doctrine of the Left. Yeah. Which is a quite a controversial title because <laughs> um, it's because you know if listeners aren't familiar, the Shock Doctrine is a phenomena that. I guess mostly was like is linked with Naomi Klein's book, right? Yeah. Um, and I, which I, I remember reading a while back, and who also and she she also wrote No Logo, which was the the big political book when I was a, yeah, a that, student. That was the, the I think the first thing that really kind of radicalised me. Was, right. was, was reading that book when I was like fourteen, I think it was. Right. Um, yeah, sort of like just getting recommended it off Radiohead message boards that I used to frequent. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, right. It was that, and it was, and it was, yeah. Radiohead, I guess, uh, turned a lot of people on to kind of very basic left wing yeah, concepts. Yeah, yeah. And the irony is that they're now coming out with like awful politics around yeah. like Israel Palestine. Yeah, like. exactly. Now they're playing uh, <laughs> where they shouldn't be. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, musical heroes from your past that have let you down are. That's a whole whole other conversation, yeah. <laughs> um, but but like the shock doctrine is a a phenomena that has been kind of commented on of like it's it's creating disasters and then profiting from that like mm. using that to to maintain st- stability and in inverted commas within politics. So like mm. um, and it's something we've seen. You know, Blair and Iraq is shock doctrines, and uh, like American foreign policy, like forever has yeah. been based around shock doctrine, which is why it's controversial to say of the left because yeah. it sounds like it's a positive, it's a positive thing, which I, I imagine in some ways it is. So, so yeah, do you want to do you want to do you want to break that down for people? So, um, like a lot of the book is basically trying to present an accessible reframing of what's what's called things like. Uh, complexity theory or complex <coughs> systems theory it's sort of this this series of um, concepts you get in both the the natural and increasingly the social sciences that are used to try and understand how systems work complex systems being anything from like you know a human body a city the global ecosystem <coughs> where you've got lots of lots of very different parts that but they're, and they're interacting in lots of different ways but they're creating this sort of regular structures kind of come out of them and you can find certain dynamics that apply across all of them it's incredibly interesting you still have very you know the human body is still very different to a city the city is still very different to the global ecosystem but there are certain things that you can you can see certain dynamics certain mechanisms that you can apply to all these different scales and once you see that you can start talking about with the shock doctrine instead of just starting starting from this it is a right wing kind of thing instead trying to first of all analyze what does it mean in terms of things like chaos and order 
uh, what is what is actually happening in terms of the structure of these systems. And essentially, I, I kind of argue that it's their strategy is creating chaos and having already built alternative structures in place, alternative ideas, alternative institutions. Um, when that chaos, chaos is ongoing, the, the institutions, the ideas that the right wing has built, they are ready to to become. Right, right, right. This is yeah. yeah. Um, so my argument is, we we have to be much more ready for moments of chaos. First of all, just things that happen are going to happen, like economic crashes, um, environmental disasters, all these kind of things, which are just going to happen. Definitely, we have to be ready for them. We have to be building the alternative structures ready to to be in place to, so that we're not just sort of like, oh, now a big thing's happened. What do we do? Um, we have to have networks of ideas, networks of organisations and everything ready for these moments and we have to have a concerted awareness among the left that we are preparing for these moments and we're going we're gonna to strike when something happens um, whether that's you know, um, a left government getting into power and doing things very quickly or whether it means you know, like say having built up a network of cooperatives that is ready to you know, if, if the functions of the state happen to fall, fall apart which a lot, of, a lot of people particularly in the sort of you know um, movements around like social ecology uh, are arguing yeah the state is actually going to fully break down if not even the worst climate kind of predictions happen even, even anywhere near that we, things are going to get very bad we have to be ready like, it sounds incredibly like i say incredibly apocalyptic but at the same time we have to have this real belief that oh, this is possible we can build these alternative structures and networks of institutions that can take over things if the state falls apart and you see you see examples of it all the time what some people have called like disaster communism like when the state fails to step in around things like Hurricane Katrina and yeah, various various kind of disasters where the state is just totally failing to actually provide for people, it grows up out of the grassroots. People support one another. They create their own little networks for making sure people have got food and water. Right. It's absolutely possible. What I what I'm arguing is we need to have the institutions in place long before that happens, not just wait for it to happen and shit. Oh, we've got to we've got to sort sort out all this kind of stuff we have to have all this stuff already building. And that's the general argument. I do also argue that sometimes we need to create chaos. But that's actually less controversial than it sounds because, for example, a general strike is, a, is an example of deliberately causing yeah, yeah. Chaos, chaos in a system in order that we can have greater sort of, you know, our, we can then push forward. Yeah, there's a very long history of the left creating chaos. I mean, exactly, the, the, yeah. like, like it shouldn't be that, yeah, I mean, the, what, what was the communist revolution? I mean, like, well, like you know, revolution itself is chaos. Mm. And most most leftists of, of, of whatever hue are kind of like the idea of revolution, yeah. whether it be violent or whether it be cultural or whatever it is, uh, like to change... Is not a bad thing. Yes, yeah. and, and I think one of the one of the many perhaps reasons why people shy away from that is is to do with things like around the Bolshevik Revolution and, and, the, and <laughs> right. the, the Cultural Revolution in ways in which they didn't they didn't have this aspect of care that is increasingly being absolutely right. They didn't consider the the you know they they considered the collective, but they didn't consider the individual. And I think this is one thing the left continues to get wrong. It thinks oh well, the right wing is individualist. So we have to ignore the individual and just talk about the collective. Like, no, we have to learn how those two are constantly interacting. 
you are a, a, a unique slow snowflake individual. Everyone is. Right. Everyone has a unique path of the world. They have a unique personality. They have unique experiences. But we also have collective identities. We also have organisations and communities. And we're also, we also have to build a, a global identity. Those two things don't need to be contradictory. Right. We, we're, we're many things at the same exactly. time. We feel and we hurt and we have trauma. And those things have to be taken into account. If we're going to talk about you know, creating chaos... It can't just be a case of, oh, well, that this is a sanction to create any kind of chaos. Well, no, we have to create it in such a way that's not going to create generations of trauma, which is what right. failed, failed to be considered in earlier revolutions, where it was sort of, oh, well, we just have to push through these ideas. It doesn't matter really who gets hurt as long as communism wins. It's like, actually, no, you're setting up you're setting up your ultimate failure. Even if you manage to stay in power for so long, you've created this kind of... Yeah, you create generations of trauma that are gonna come back. They're gonna come back to haunt you. They're gonna. It's gonna keep coming back in counter revolutions in everything. And so, just from a from a, a from a practical point of view, your your revolution will fail if you don't consider the human, the the feeling of right. trauma. But also, what's what are we doing this for? If if we're willing to just right. destroy so many human bodies right. for the sake of what well, apparently the emancipation of human beings, that makes no sense to me. Um, so yeah, so I can understand like people maybe reading the title and being like, "Shit, this is going to be this is going to be saying, yeah, you know, let's just do exactly." No, I'm I very much what what part of the point of you know, saying balancing these different like strategies on the left is one of the ones that, one of the four that I identify as healing, and it is like so important that we foreground oppression, power, care. Uh, transformation, like I say, the, the ability of things to change, the ability of people to change, the ability of mistakes to be made and made up for, the ability for, for the opposite to happen, of course, as well, for great stuff to then kind of go, oh, actually we've made mistakes. Right, um, and I think that's also another trend that you, you see now in politics of like people who for years have been like, everything's just steadily getting better, and it's getting better for women, it's getting better for people of colour. And of course, like, and, and it's not been uh, that gradual progression that, that mm. is being that is portrayed by uh, by people. And so, that yeah, we, we need to understand that, that, that anything you struggle for and win at great price is still likely to be taken from you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's happening. You know, it's literally, I was speaking to a, an American uh, guy in, in this secret location the other day and he was saying that like he's queer and he's like now he's in the UK he's looking back at America and he's like the way that the changes currently uh, in, in law around uh, queer people like uh, it makes it like can I go home can I yeah. go back to that place that I came from like and that's that's how quick uh, that's how quick law and uh, social attitudes change yeah I think I think there's an interesting thing in terms of we, you, like you're right we do tend to think of change in this very singular either it's either getting better or it's either getting worse it's like sometimes by virtue of things of, of us having won that's when the reaction really hits like I think when things like around like trans rights and sex worker rights over the last few years we've actually I think been really winning at the same time because we're winning, there's a huge backlash, a huge increase in violence against yeah, people, right. a huge increase in media outlets attacking attacking people explicitly. And it can feel like, oh my God, everything's going to shit and, and people really need a lot of support to get through these horrible times. But at the same time, I think 
in those particular examples and certain other ones that the reason why things are going so bad is because they're going so well if that makes sense no I, I, I know what you mean yeah. I think that's definitely true and I think we've we're kind of people are thinking about gender about race about class even about disability certainly like loads of things that haven't been thought of yeah in a in a way that just hasn't been there haven't yeah. been popular conversations and it's, and about it's, this it's super radical like, and, it's, and it's it's exciting for me you know like the the kind of grand old age of, of 37 36 <laughs> and i'm not sure even how old i am but like the, the people who inspire me are like you know 18 year olds well, you know who are like who have learned a completely new way of thinking about them Person, person who inspired me most recently, I believe, is eight years old. <laughs> um, a, a new, a new colleague, colleague has started at Open Barbers. They're bring, bringing in their kid, and obviously, you know, you know, they're perhaps not typical of all children. Of all children, they're growing up with a parent who is obviously very, very well, well aware of like gender issues and stuff like this. Asked me what my pronouns were. <laughs> I cannot even begin to imagine like how different that generation right. is going to be if that is possible. And that's how it has to be anyway. Like, if we really want to learn, unlearn the incorrect information we've been learning from birth, mm. uh, it needs to be young people who... Exactly, like, yeah. We can't... Uh, no matter how uh, much I try to think outside of the binary mm. uh, in terms of gender, like, it, it's a real effort. It's a real, like... And it's liberating, it's a real... It's a worthwhile effort. Mm. It, it's liberating. It takes a long time. But like, a I'm lot unlearning work. everything. Yeah. Everything. And also, I'm unlearning not just the stuff I learned, but the things that I'm still learning now. Like, all media around me yeah. is still saying the same stuff to me. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big risk to, to, to get to a point where you think, well, oh, I'm woke now. Right, like, right, right. It's, like I said, even that is, you have to think of everything in terms of change and futures and impermanence. And it's like, we're going to learn new stuff. Everyone is going to make mistakes. Everyone is going to... And it might be the case that we get to old age and, and all the exceptionally woke stuff that we've been we've been sort of like being like, oh, maybe that'll look really dated as well. Definitely will. Um, so I, mean, I think all, it, it definitely will. Like, I mean, and that's the thing. When I talk about my 2011 self, because I, I listen back to him quite often, um, like... He was relatively like for for that time he would have sounded really progressive. Yeah. Like it, even that's so close in 2011. Like, but you know now he sounds super reactionary, yeah. and that, that's just that's that's how it goes. You know, like you know maybe I was relatively woke when I was a child, but like the wokeness of a child is nothing like the wokeness of a teenager, the wokeness of a, someone in their twenties. That's just how it goes. Yeah. And it's a bit like feminism, isn't it? I mean, c- certainly I'd never used the word woke about myself, but I would potentially use the word feminist about myself but mm. I still don't see it as an identity so much as uh, like a process like yeah. a, a, a politics uh, an evolution a, a direction you know all of those kind of things rather than an identity which is certainly not my critique of identity politics I'm all for some identity politics uh, not the, the identity politics of the right that we're living with mostly yeah. but the identity politics of the left are, are, are liberatory we all have identities but still there's we have identities but that's also true like that's the thing two things can exist at the same time like yeah. we're, we're individuals we have identities we identify as things labels matter but they also don't matter like it's both of those things exactly. and I think for many women for many queer and trans people it can be exceptionally liberating 
to be able to identify as part of a wider identity because it's not just about individual identity you know the whole point is it's supposed to be a collective yeah. sort of thing there are plenty of cis women who have done plenty of things that are not feminist mm. uh, there are plenty of like like people of all genders uh, are anti-feminist in their behaviours yeah. uh, and I think that people of all genders can get some liberation from identifying as feminist I don't particularly care like I, I say in my show I don't care what you call me yeah, it really yeah. is irrelevant to me I'm, I'm trying my best to do things and also there are lots of feminisms I don't want to be associated with anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like I think there's lots of opinions around this and like they're, they're all valid a little bit like what you yeah, yeah, like yeah. what you were saying in terms of more broadly around politics that we, there are like multiple multiple meanings multiple interpretations multiple experiences yeah. is kind of that's real that's what we all I think on on the issue of identity politics versus versus intersectionality let's say yeah. I think there's there's what how I'm how I'm thinking about it now this isn't really in the book or anything but it's been I've seen it argued before the difference between identity politics in the bad sort of liberal sense let's say uh, and a sort of a, a really emancipatory kind of intersectional politics I've seen it argued that the difference is class like do you uh, do you actually have an analysis of capitalism as part of one of your intersections yeah that's often li- missed out and that's yeah. a problem yeah. that is I think one aspect of it I don't think that's enough is it? I don't think because it's it, you could potentially have still quite a a, a, a fairly liberal I mean maybe not liberal but you could you could still do this kind of very rigid kind of identity politics kind of thinking and start including class in it for me the difference between that and something very emancipatory is actually essentialism are you seeing people's identities as something fixed impermanent um, singular like you are just this identity or are you like you say aware of the multiplicity right. of identity that in this situation I might identify in this way because I need to do for for a particular political purpose whereas in another you know I'm rather than a kind of a segregationary kind of identity it's a sense of in this situation I identify as a woman with other women because we have shared interests whereas I go into this other context and I decide to identify as a black person because those white women are not are not in this on this particular issue are not Right. interested in my interests whereas in this other situation I identify as a queer person because you know black hetero people are, are not yeah, supporting yeah, right, me exactly. and white hetero people aren't supporting me the problem becomes when you cut people out of all situations you don't see yeah. that as a fluid thing that you can, you can pass into different contexts and identify as part of these different things depending on what you need to do in that moment right. if, you, if you just gradually cut out or cut out all white women or cut out all, all hetero people whether they're white or black and, and you gradually go and grow into just the tiniest kind of you might need that at certain points you need a very close community that can support you on the, the specifics of your day to day life but if we all do that we really cannot build social movement whatsoever sure I mean this is it this, it's like I think that intersectionality and solidarity don't have to be uh, separate they don't have to be against each other but there are some people who use intersectionality uh, as a as a way of dividing themselves yeah. and each other and kind of playing like like it's, it's a cliche to say and lots of people use it uh, disingenuously but like oppression olympics is like the the, the word and it, but it, i've seen that play yeah. out in in activist spaces and it's brutal we have to be so careful because like a lot of the this language of 
of the right that critiques identity politics is incredibly reactionary, incredibly wrong. But sometimes the left does do crap stuff yeah. around, around these issues, and sometimes it is self-destructive, and sometimes yeah. we're not. We have to. We do have to think strategically at the same time that we think about care and and you know the power relationships within our communities as well as between them. And certainly, anybody who's using the term intersectional like should should check out the original theorists. Of course, yeah. I mean, they're much better on all of these things. And they <laughs> they absolutely would always like you know Kimberly Crenshaw or Bell Hooks or whoever are definitely going to agree that class is an important thing yeah. um, which a lot of you know say middle class white uh, y- you know people put the, put I see the word in, in my Twitter you know, bio yeah, kind the of. people I see <laughs> in, 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 in activist spaces they're often not thinking about class but that's that's the, that's on them not on the theory yeah. uh, you know I, I, I've seen a lot of people of colour who like intersectionality as a, a theory who who've become very frustrated with it as a buzzword as yeah. a, a thing co-opted and appropriated ironically by by, <laughs> by other people so yeah before we like wrap up like i guess there's another thing you're working on around kind of mindfulness and mm. uh, and politics and mixing those two things together yeah actually kind of grows quite sort of fluidly out of the stuff that's in the book it's actually based on a lot of the same ideas but Originally, the book was like a six-part course that I I facilitated, um, I guess, sort of a year or two ago, and it was incredible, like an incredibly you know enlightening experience. We tried to make it as participatory as possible, even though a lot of it was me kind of you know yammering on with all the ideas <laughs> of the book. We tried to tried to make it sort of you know that there were group discussions and people were using the ideas and kind of they were actually feeding back to me and that was helping to change the ideas. So you know, so there was a kind of a, like a participatory production of it. But by the end of it, I was kind of dissatisfied with that as a as an educational process. So I, I've been doing a lot of these sort of over the last few years participatory kind of discussion events and stuff like that. And I think they have, they're really important. It's really important ju- not just to have like someone standing on a stage talking at you. You definitely have to mix in kind of participatory discussions. But I think, and this is this is also part of my own sort of self critique and um, around particularly things around like gender and race and stuff like that is like you're saying it's very 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 difficult to actually internalize a lot of the things that we we believe on a conscious level we can yeah. be convinced utterly convinced for years of certain things around you know gender politics but it's a lot of the horrible shit within us is so deeply embedded out of years and years and years of conditioning that thinking about it and writing about it isn't enough discussing it i don't think is enough I've been trying to look into different ways that we can try and change our conscious experience because a lot of it is about how we unconsciously react to the world. Like we can consciously think, you know, this, these are these are all like political propositions that I believe in, but then unconsciously you still notice yourself reacting in a certain way to the world around you, and you sometimes even look back at things you've done with yourself, like acts and think of ways you've acted and been like, shit, that was way contradictory to my politics, right? And so, um, for my for, for, you know, for my benefit of actually being able to grow myself and not make the same mistakes, and for other people who I see making the same mistakes, which I think is pretty much everyone in some some capacity, I've, I've started to think: Well, what are different ways of learning to embody, to actually properly embody our politics, and not just think them and write them, but actually really change the way we're interacting on a person-to-person level and on how we're building organisations and all this kind of stuff. And it's drawn me towards what you might call more contemplative 
practices, like ways that we actually we give ourselves space to sit down in the group and literally just look at what our minds are doing, right. look at our processes, look at how we react, look what our bodies do when we hear a certain word, when we think of a certain situation or a certain person, and through that, over a period of time, really spend a lot of time kind of developing ourselves and it has so many so many potential uses for one i mean there's there's so much research and stuff on how good just mindfulness and stuff is for your mental health so that's immediately it's a good thing like from a sort of a self-care kind of perspective but mindfulness as it's as it currently stands how it's used in like healthcare education and the workplace particularly is not especially radical it just tells you to feel the present moment and it's you know it's been used as a stress reduction technique but that can equally be used to, you know, de-stress you from your terrible job so that you can go right. back to your terrible job. In some ways, it's a liberal conceit. Exactly. Like you can yeah. see it as that. Like, as much as, as someone with mental health issues, I also, like, use, like, mindfulness techniques or, like, think about mindfulness or I've had, like, therapy, which is a form of kind of being mindful. Um, like, yeah, like, there is a liberalness about it exactly, that doesn't yeah. appeal in some ways. So, so kind of what we're trying to do in this sort of new group we started, uh, London Radical Mindfulness, is to try and develop a way of doing mindfulness that retains that, you know, the good stuff about it, the, it the, around the sort of the secular mindfulness that can be very can be very good for dealing with mental health issues and traumas and things right. like this. Um, but to try and bring back um, some of the things that are lost when it... Because mindfulness has better been torn out of a Buddhist context. And I'm not a Buddhist and all this kind of stuff, but by removing it from that context, you remove any chance of using it to think about reality or to think about ethics, which are the, like, you know, considering what the world is like and what our minds are like is kind of, was originally, you know, that's the point of med- meditative practice. Right, it's, it's become much more about the individual exactly, rather yeah. than about the collective. So, and, so the question is, can we, or, or how can we use contemplative practices to create collective identity, collective consciousness? Uh, and so that's kind of the, the project that we're working on at the moment. It's, it's, I'm basically like focusing on the healing stuff from the book and saying, okay, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of the, the smashing stuff and I'll, you know, I'll support other people to do that. Then maybe that's not my thing. And uh, <laughs> I, I'll, the taming stuff, which is like, you know, people getting involved with the Labour Party and stuff. I'm like, okay, well, I'll support the people doing that, but that's not my thing. I'm not going to join the Labour Party. But the healing stuff is, is very important to me. It's, you know, right. how, to, how to heal from traumas, how to change our consciousness so that we can actually build this, this care, care-based world that we talk about. Where, but at the same time that we're... I don't think so many so much just aren't prepared for. We're, we still have so much we're dealing with within ourselves. And I think we really need different ways of looking at the mind and at consciousness in general. It's, it, you very easily slip into kind of hippie territory... But I think there's like a there's a big conversation that we're drawing on around acid communism, which is like sort of deliberately kind of amusing and provocative term. But it's um, Mark Fisher, who unfortunately committed suicide last year, it was, it was his idea. And he he wanted to counter this kind of capitalist realism, this idea that there was no there is no alternative, as Margaret Thatcher said, that we're just these competitive, it's just these competitive individuals and nothing else. And you know, capitalism is all there is. We can't imagine. You know, it's easy to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, as, as they say. He wanted to counter that, and he thought that the one way was to re- reconnect with this idea of that you had in a lot of 60s counterculture for all of its problems, this idea that, that reality was plastic, that it was, that it was changeable, that things were possible. 
Um, and that was a popular idea. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just a clique. It was the Beatles were the most popular thing that had ever happened at that point. And they were at the forefront of psychedelic consciousness, of this idea that things could change, that radical political change was possible. That was that wasn't wasn't a niche thing. It was it was popular culture. So this idea of, of acid communism is this idea that we we need to be able to repopularize this idea that things are impermanent and we can influence them and we can create a completely different way of living in the world, of thinking in the world, a completely different world in general. Um, and so that's you know it's what we're trying to contribute to in some small way with our radical mindfulness project. No, I think that sounds like a really great project. And also, like, the broader ideas around it, I think, are useful to keep in mind. I mean, I think it's, you know, like, I have the same thing. Like, you, when you sort of, like, get into these areas, like, I'm quick to sort of say, so it sounds a bit hippie, but it's not (laughs) not hippie. But I think, you know, part of that is that the the stigma around the concept of hippie, uh, it, it was, has given, was, given by reactionary forces yeah. which is not to say that you know the, a little bit like feminism I'm sure both of us have very in-depth critique of hippie as a culture and, and the, the flaws in that culture just as many people have critiques of certain uh, strands of feminism but it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that that direction is the wrong direction just as that the direction of feminism yeah. is, is not the wrong direction and you have to reconnect with it in a, a critical of all the problems around things like you know cultural appropriation orientalism and stuff right. on the spiritual end of things or or just on you know on like the gender politics and things like this sure um, I mean that's often the left's big kind of Achilles heel is that like we, we have all these progressive ideas and then like when you get to them it's just like men being sexist and uh, women being like told to do, to do the, the labour mm, yeah <laughs> and, and unfortunately for me I, I can't say that I am on Unguilty of that. On, sure, on some, we're on both some we're both men. We're both part of it. Like yeah. it's 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 you can't get out of the system that you're in. You know. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to try as we hard can as we change can. The system. We, <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's one. And, but we can't <laughs> we can't get out of it. And so whilst it's not changed, we're still part of that. Yeah, and that's kind of what going back to the sort of the mindfulness thing. It's like one of the one of the problems with this idea of individual mindfulness as as, as a sort of a, a mental health thing is that it's this idea that you can you just have to change what's within you. But you are also the result of social forces around you. You right. can't, you can't recover completely from from what's happening to you without changing the systems that you're embedded in. Right, and that's a real problem in mental health in general. Is that like, yeah, that people go in with system systemic problems yeah. as much as in, uh, personal problems, and they're just given the tools to deal with their personal problems, um, if even them. <laughs> but definitely, like it's it's. I, I've heard a lot of you know people of color, particularly therapists of color, who are, are like, you know, mindfulness doesn't help get rid of racism. No, exactly. Yeah. And it's understandable to be anxious and depressed or whatever because of the fact that you're experiencing racism every day. Yeah. Um, and so whatever it is, like whatever you the thing that that. that contribute systematically to your mental health I, I think nearly all mental health has an element of systems yeah. uh, involved in it, whether that be capitalism uh, or like racism or whatever yeah. it is. I think that at the same time we have to be careful not to just sort of go, well because it's not it's not sufficient, that it's not necessary it kind of goes back to what we are saying yeah, about yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. considering the individual and the collective you, it, like these kind of mindfulness practices even in their kind of quite neoliberal sort of completely 
you know, yeah, they help remove, they can, they can they really help help. They've helped me. That's the reason why they're so popular. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I've been doing this kind of stuff for years now, and it is incredibly, incredibly useful. I think it's just like, yeah, situating it and understanding its drawbacks and its 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 limits right. in that in that mode. But of course, we're trying to we're trying to develop it in a sort of slightly different way of doing mindfulness that hopefully has different yeah. potentials and different limits. But. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's, it's like finding new combinations of things and being yeah. fluid, being permeable. Like, I like that that word that you've used as well. <laughs> um, it's been a real pleasure getting very great with you today. Like, I, I feel like. There's so many ideas that you've said that I'm going to be thinking about after we Fantastic. kind of leave this room. And also, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, like, uh, w- whether I buy the book straight away or whether I wait till I have the financial means to, like, <laughs> do that in a comfortable way, I'm definitely super interested in reading it. Thank um, you so very much. The last thing I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Well, the, the book, <laughs> <laughs> uh, The Shock Doctrine of the Left, that's the main thing. Um, what I will say is there is an Amazon strike going on at the moment, so do not buy it from Amazon. Um, and at the rest of the time, if you can afford not to buy it from Amazon, and I think this should probably go for everything in general, if you can afford not to buy it from Amazon, don't. Yep. Try, and, try and buy it directly from publishers, directly from independent bookstores and all this kind of stuff. But as far as I'm concerned, if you are on a low income and the cheapest place to get, whatever, whether it's this book or whatever it is that you need, if it's Amazon get it from Amazon it's, it's not on you I mean the, other, the system issue the other alternative is to steal the book but that, that is, is it. not very helpful I'm, for Graham I'm not allowed <laughs> to condone that publicly sure, <laughs> so sure, I sure, won't sure. <laughs> and also it's a balance as well it's like you know you, you do need to still get some money for your labour like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So Although if it's, everyone it's, steals the book course, it's not yeah. helpful I'm, I'm not I'm not in it to make money I'm, I'm in it because, sure, because of course it's, yeah it's, it's nice to get a few quid to you know pay for pay for breakfast but um at least to pay for the like you don't want to lose money exactly that's the yeah, thing, yeah. to cover the cost so they, <laughs> so they can find that on, on online like, yeah i think it's a policy books website um and just search for the shock doctrine of the left and you'll you'll find it there excellent um and the last thing i ask my guests uh, to do is to say goodbye to the audience thank you very much for listening goodbye to everyone Bye, everyone. If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, if you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. Unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering you can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk if you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship Check out my essay series, Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. As well as making Getting Better Acquainted, I also co-produce and, I guess, star in the magical realist audio drama podcast, The Family Tree. In order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal 
can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook at Getting Better Acquainted. And you can find it anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. And if you want to email me personally, that's gbapodcast at gmail.com or I'm goosefat101 on Twitter. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>